So basically, we are at the stage where Muhammad has now received, as Dahi just mentioned, the most unexpected source of support that he could imagine. Considering the fact that now Muhammad has literally gone around the houses, literally the whole of Arabia has come to Makkah to do Hajj. And he's gone literally to every organization, every group, every tribe to try and get support. So imagine now his situation that, if I try to put it in a nutshell, you have a man who's from the most prestigious tribe in Makkah. He's highly respected, highly loved, and has a, some people say, from the Quraysh perspective, a quirkiness in him that he doesn't follow the norms and the standards of everybody else. He doesn't follow the idol worshipping, he doesn't follow their traditions, their values. And it was something that Allah SWT built into him, where he would naturally move away from a lot of the values and those norms that a lot of the people practiced. And this gave him that slight little edge towards the monotheistic belief. So over a period of time, Muhammad kept away from a lot of the idol worshipping and he kept very close. To, I mean, if you remember that a lot of the Arabs, majority of those Arabs come from Ibrahim Islam, okay, from the from the source of Ismail, because and they are the the, the Quraysh tribe, okay. You've got other tribes who are from the Yemen, you've got other tribes that are amalgamation of the Persians and the Syrians, but the pure uh, Quraysh tribe are from Hazrat Ismail. So Muhammad is from that, and, and because of that lineage, Muhammad has a natural tendency to worship that monotheistic belief. Now remember, Hazrat Ismail as a prophet wasn't a Jew or a Christian. Okay, this Judaism and Christianity existed on the right-hand side of Ibrahim Islam, meaning that Ibrahim Islam had two sons, Ismail and Ishaq. So everyone under the progeny of Ishaq, the birth of the Bani Israel occurred, which was the Jews and the Christians. And Ismail was then sent to Arabia and hence the birth of Islam. So the only thing that Muslims knew about the religion of Hazrat Ismail and Ibrahim Islam was a monotheistic belief, believing in one God. There's nothing else. Okay? And so the Kaaba was built by Ibrahim Islam and Hazrat Ismail, as we know, and therefore the traditions of the Hajj, the ceremony, the pilgrimage acts that we do, come from Ibrahim Islam. It was not introduced by Islam. Right? It wasn't introduced by the advent of Muslim being a prophet. It came from him. So he had a natural tendency towards even worshipping the, the, you know, or praying towards the Kaaba. Now, obviously, over a period of time, when he received his revelation, that's when all the problems began, because now Muhammad Sallam, by receiving this revelation, Allah Ta'ala chose Muhammad Sallam, prepared him for many years to take this prophethood, and now, all of a sudden, in his own community, amongst his own family, he's now challenging their ideas and challenging their views, just as much as any of you guys would probably do that. We live in a society, especially being coming from a very Pakistani or subcontinent background, we have a lot of values, a lot of traditions. If you look at, for example, the Caucasian, white, British people here, there's no real values. Build, you know, be whatever you want, right? With LGBT now, they're happy to, for you to be X, Y, or Z. Nobody cares. Be this religion, be that religion. There's no values. But being from the subcontinent and many of the other Muslim lands, we have a very strong tradition uh, and value about what we hold. And there is this 
unwritten law in our families and in our tradition that you don't question what your forefathers bring you, so you just follow exactly what they give you. And if you try to question, and that even includes the religion of Islam. So me growing up, for example, it was a tradition that everyone gets married in the family, right? Everyone has to marry their cousins, everyone's got to do this, etc. You get all these typical traditions and no one's allowed to challenge them. And anyone who did was met in a very harsh manner. And I'm sure a lot of the older guys here can probably tell you many stories of what happened. Um, and then slowly this also occurs in the matter of religion as well. And now you begin to find that a lot of the youngsters who have, have more interests, are more open to ideas, have a, little, a better, more level understanding of Islam, when they come to challenge those ideas, becomes problematic, becomes problematic in the mosque, becomes a problematic in your families. So if you imagine that now Muhammad has got these ideas, he's challenging the religion of his forefathers, his grandfather and everybody else, nobody took it quite nicely in the way that he proposed it. So Muhammad you know, carried on preaching his ideas of the monotheistic belief and the Quraysh were like, okay, you know what, you do what you want, but just don't bother interrupting and bothering everybody else about it. If you want to do it, go in your own home and practice it and preach it. But Muhammad was ordered by Allah SWT that this religion is not a religion for the individual, it's not a religion for you. You're not supposed to hold it within yourself. So Islam always promotes so Islam always promotes three elements, to, which is to do with A, your relationship with Allah, two, your relationship with yourself, and three, your relationship with other people. So we have to advocate Islam in th all three aspects. So it's very important that yes, you may be praying, you may be fasting, you may be doing all of these aspects, but what about the advocation of Islam? Now, if Muhammad if you think about the torture, the pressure, the boycotting, everything that Muhammad had faced, if he had just taken out that part of Islam, which was said, leave everyone else and just take Islam for yourself, read your own salah, do your own fasting, whatever, everyone would have been happy. He would think logically, he would never been harassed. They would have let him practice. They would have even given him money to build a mosque and say, you go, you go pray the mosque. Where they had a problem was when he came out and he said to people, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is incorrect. Have you ever thought about what you're doing? And people didn't like it. And that's when the world turned against him. And so we have this responsibility that when we take on Islam, we do not do that part of it. So we're just only taking the side which actually would have made Islam lost lose, right, in everything. So Muhammad carried his dawah very heavily into the community. And as a result of that, he had protection from his own family. So the interesting thing is, so Muhammad is from the family called the Banu Matalib, which is from a bigger tribe called the Banu Hashim. What was interesting was that family was willing to protect him. But within the same family, they disliked him. So in the same family, they were idol worshippers. But it was just out of pride. It was just out of pride. We have that in, in, in our subcontinent family, in our Pakistani families, where if one if we know that one of our relatives is misbehaving or not or, or has got into a fight with another family or another, okay, even if he's wrong, we still feel that we have responsibility to protect that person. And so there's this there's this this natural honor and dignity that they hold. So they wanted to protect Mahamsa Salam. It was just a matter of honor. Then eventually the one person that protected him, the leader of that tribe, which is uh, uh, Abu Talib, was his, who was his uncle, died eventually. And even though Muhammad tried his best as a prophet, as a prophet, as a man of God, he was unable to convert this individual. He tried his level best. 
on his bed, this man was dying and he was telling him, please, I beg you to embrace Islam, take the Shahada, give me something that I can fight for on the day of judgment for you to bring you out of hell. And his uncle responded back and said, if it wasn't for the fact that my people would turn around and curse me after my death for embracing Islam and leaving their religion, I would have accepted it. But because of that, I'm not willing to do that. We choose the wrong over what is right because we worry more about what the community will say rather than what Allah would ask us. And so when he did die, then Muhammad attempted to make dua for him and Allah basically stopped him. He challenged Muhammad, he says, you are not permitted, it's not permitted for any believer or any prophet to stand up and make dua for a non-believer after the message has been put forward to him. Because Allah says, the way the world works is, I create you, you've been put on this earth, you have a lifespan, an ajr, until the ajr is finished, you have the opportunity to do the right thing. And if you don't do it and you die, it's game over. No man on this world will ever be able to change my mind. You will go down into hell and you will never e exit that because you had the truth showed to you. So one Sahabi said to the Prophet what were you able to do for your uncle? As a prophet, what could you do? You were a man of God. He said, the only thing I could do was take him from the deepest part of hell and put him at the most shallow level. And they said, and how bad was that? They said, if he puts his feet on the shallow level, immediately his head will explode out of the pressure. And Allah will recreate him and his punishment will continue. But that will be the least of punishment. So Muhammad now ends up in a situation when, when his uncle passes away and then his uh, wife passes away in the year of sorrow, Hazrat Khadija radiallahu anha, then the most amazing thing happens, he gets the Isra al miraj Allah gives him a man that is broken and trodden, loses all support. Allah says, this is a lesson for you and for everyone else. When the world turns against you and everything has gone down, there is not one human being in the world, whether your father, your mother, your brother, your wife, your sister, doesn't make any difference. Nobody will save you and get you out of your misery. Whether you've got financial problems, health problems, you've got any other issues, nobody will get you out of that situation but Allah. That's the simple message. We run over here, we want to be throwing money here, we throw money here, we call our friends up, get us out of the situation. Nobody no job will come to you, no financial help will come to you, no one will get rid of your health issues, bar Allah SWT. And that's a lesson that Allah taught Muhammad That here your uncle protected you is gone, your wife who gave you the support is gone, your sahabi in Makkah who can't really stand up and really help you because they will be beaten and killed and whatever, no one. And so when Muhammad was put to his lowest point, and they say that was the worst point of his life, then Allah took him to Isra al-Miraj. And what was, the, what was the reason for that? So that he could see something bigger than the dunya itself, which if we could see that, nothing would matter to us. If Allah could give you the opportunity and say, I'm going to take you one night. Okay, not even physically. What if I give you a dream? A most powerful dream that shows you something bigger than this dunya, shows you hell, shows you heaven, shows you something spectacular. This will change your view. And it's happened to people in the past, right? Men in history who said, I've had a vision, I've had a dream. And it's inspired them enough to make a massive big change in the world. And so Allah took this man on a physical journey and showed him the seven heavens all the way up to Allah SWT, where he had a very personal conversation with him. And Allah says, I'm doing this to get you ready for the next stage of your life. 
because that next stage will change the face of this world for till the end. And so, when that journey was done and Muhammad was sent back, there he was faced with a lot of hostility. But now Muhammad was a very changed individual. Now he knew, I don't need anyone except for Allah. My support will come from God and nobody else. But I have a duty, Allah has ordered me and I'll do that. So in the month of Hajj, these people used to come. Muhammad went to each of these different groups. Some were kind, some were didn't give him any response, and some were outright rude to the point that they tried to harm him. And then after going to all of these tribes, he ran eventually into these six young lads. They were just like little 15, 16-year-old, maybe the oldest of 18, 19, we don't know the exact age. Young lads, they were sitting there. They came from Medina. Now Medina at this time was called Yathrib. Now for us to call it Yathrib, historical term we can say because we're talking about Medina, you cannot call it Yathrib. It's haram to call it Yathrib now. It's Medina. Yathrib was the name that the Jews gave Medina. And they were there as everybody else was. They do their pilgrimage like every other Arab does and they go back. So when Muhammad Sallam saw them, he went over to them and he would treat everyone the same. And this is the most important thing. We have this mentality that we get some very religious guy comes over from Pakistan or from Saudi Arabia and we're like, oh, get the carpet out, get the best food and the kana and give him the best. And then you have the most simplest guy who's a, who prays five times a day and who's a nobody and we don't care about him. Muhammad Salam got beaten and trodden by all of these big, rich king tribes, master tribes. And these young six kids who were sitting there Muhammad gave him the same time and the same effort and said, do you mind if I sit with you and talk to you about Islam? So now imagine these six kids are sitting there and they're listening to Muhammad talk about Islam. The first thing that came in their mind was this. Isn't this the man that the Jews used to talk about in Medina, in Yathrib? So let me give you a background story on this, right? I'm briefly touching on it last week, but this is paramount to what we're going to talk about going forward. The Jews that came into Arabia many, many years ago, way before Muhammad was even born, the Jews entered, ended up in Arabia for what reason? When the Roman Christians attacked the Yehuds, you look in history, Yehuds were attacked by everybody. When the Christians, when the Arum, which is Syria at the time, when they started to attack all of the Jews, the Jews escaped, right, out of persecution, and they came to the lands of Arabia. The other Jews that left were looking for the final messenger. So in their scriptures, they were given so many prophets. And you know them, Musa salam, Dawood salam, Harun salam, and goes on and on all the way to Isa bin Maryam. But in their scriptures, there was an indication there was one more prophet to come. One more. Little did they know that that one was coming from their family, from Ibrahim salam, but they were expecting it was coming from Ishaq's side. So Ibrahim has two sons, Ismail and Ishaq. Ishaq was the one that was sent to Arabia. That was it. No one ever knew about him. Ishaq was the one who had a son called Jacob, Yaqub. And Jacob, they used to call him Israel. That's his nickname, right? In the Christian Bible, they called him Israel. That's why in the Quran, every the children of Jacob, there were 12 children, one of them being Yusuf, Joseph. Jacob's nickname was Israel. So the 12 children and their children are referred to as Bani Israel. Now the Quran is talking, Bani Israel is talking about the children of Jacob. So everyone under them, there were prophets that came through. 
The last one was Isa bin Maryam, Jesus Christ. He was the last one. So in their scriptures, they're expecting one more from this lineage. So they travelled all the way to, there were two cities they came to in Arabia. One was Medina, Yathrib they called it, and the other one was Kheber. Okay, two cities, nowhere else. So when they came to this place, in this town, there were Arab tribe, two Arab tribes in Medina. One was called the Aus, and the other one was called Khazraj, and they were originally from Yemen. They were a mixture of Yemen and from other areas, but mainly from Yemen. Behaviour of the Jews was such that the Jews became very wealthy, became very rich, they became businessmen, and they used to loan money on interest, and they used to loan armories, so they controlled everything. And the Aus and Khazraj were a very big tribe. The Jews were three tribes. The Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Qurayza, and Banu Nadir. Three big tribes. And they ran all the corporations. They ran all the industries. They ran all the finances. They ran all the banking, everything. And the Arabs were the local middle class, low class people, farm workers. They were the ones who wanted to borrow money to farm land. They wanted to borrow money or weapons to fight the enemy. So they would be in debt. And they would be in such debt that if they couldn't pay, the Jews used to say to the Aus and Khazraj, if you cannot pay your debt, you have to pay it with your wife and your children. So their children as babies were handed over to the Jews and they used to keep them, adopt them, bring them up as Jews and, to be, or become, and become slaves and work for them. And we know that because when Muhammad came to Medina, and there was issues with the Jewish tribe, and he kicked the Jewish tribes out, the Muslims, the Arabs, said to Muhammad you're kicking them out, but my children are with them. They've been with them for 15, 20 years. He said, then we will ask your children, they have a choice to either stay with you or go with the Jews. And because those children grew up with the Jews, they didn't know any better, and they stayed with the Jews. So those Muslims, they lost their children. It's horrendous for them. It was a horrible situation, right? So this is how bad that they were. So the Aus and Khazraj, these two tribes, used to always fight each other. Why? Because the Jews used to instigate all of the fitna between them. So how do they do it? They're saying, oh, there's some problems going on. Oh, so you probably need some weapons from us. So here you go, we're going to charge you this much. Here's the weapons. Then they go to the Khazraj tribe. The other tribes will give them weapons. And they will go into big battles and war. So sometimes it used to be a love and hate relationship between the Aus and the Khazraj, the two Arab tribes. And sometimes they used to hate on the Jewish tribes and they used to have fights with them. So the Jews used to always remind the Arabs, you carry on this behavior, remember one thing, we have one more prophet coming for us. And when he comes, all of you idol worshippers are going to be killed because he'll be with us. They used to rub this in their faces all the time. So that was the state of play. Just before Muhammad met these six kids, Three years before that, there was a huge war that broke out. It's called the Battle of Wath in Medina. Again, it was instigated over time by the Yehuds. And these two tribes, it built up so badly, this war went on for about five to ten years, they say. And the, the final war was so big, it literally wiped out all of their leaders. And only the young were virtually left. And that left a massive big hole of who was going to become the leader. So there was one man by the name of Abdullah bin Ubay. And his name's going to crop up because he was what we refer to. So in, in Islam, we say there is a Muslim. We say there's a Kafir. And we say there's a third type that was introduced later on in Medina. And that was a Munafik, a hypocrite. 
Allah said to Muhammad you know who kafar is because he'll tell you he's a kafar. You'll know who a Muslim is because you'll know from his belief. But you can't detect a munafiq. You, can't, you don't know who he is. He will say to you, I'm a Muslim, but in his heart he doesn't believe. And they're the most dangerous one. So this man, Abdullah bin Ubay, who was going to be crowned the new leader of the Arabs after everyone got wiped out, he was the king of the munafiqs. And his story will come in later on. So when Muhammad sat with these six, these six were sitting thinking, isn't this the man that the Jews keep talking about, the Prophet? Look what he's referring to. They thought to themselves, if we follow him now, we'll take him on our side. So let's adopt Islam. So some were convinced and some, there was, a, there was an interest involved in this. So they embraced Islam and they followed him. So they went back to Yathrib at the time. And when they were there, they started to preach and start giving down to whoever they can. During that period of time, they then decided to come back the following year to meet Muhammad by bringing some of their friends. So 12 returned. So six were there originally. And they went back to Medina. And after one year, on the same Hajj season, they came back and 12 turned up now. So these 12, majority were from the Khazraj tribe. About 10 of them were Khazraj and two from the Aus tribe. What this started to show now is that Aus and Khazraj youngsters are getting on with each other. So they came and they said to Muhammad what pledge do you want from us? So the pledge Muhammad took from them was only for them to embrace Islam, to leave all the anything to do with the theological aspects. Do not worship idols. Do not bury your daughters alive. And this was a very common thing. People used to bury their daughters alive to sacrifice towards their gods. This is how jahil they used to be. So everything except for the jihad, that they were not obligated at this time to protect Muhammad because jihad wasn't made an obligation at this point either. So the only thing, so this is why they refer to it in the Quran, in the Sirah, they refer to this as the woman's pledge. Because when Muhammad used to take the pledge from the women, the women, all their pledge was to follow Islam, to practice it, and to basically abide by the spiritual aspect. But the men had to commit themselves to war and protection, etc. So they used to call this the women's pledge. So that was the first pledge. So they went back. Now they came to Mount Salam, and they said to Mount Salam, send us someone. Send us someone that can come and teach the deen. So what does Muhammad Salam do? He sends to them a famous Sahabi by the, uh, by the name of Musab bin Umair. And I don't know if you've heard of this Sahabi, very, very famous Sahabi. Musab bin Umair was very famous because he was very knowledgeable about Islam, because he was one of the early converts. And Musab bin Umair was from a very rich family. His father passed away a long time ago. His mother was super wealthy. And he was considered to be like, you know, the lad in the town that used to wear boss and Prada and everything. And, and he had the most expensive perfume. The girls loved him because he was super rich and etc. And the way that he became Muslim, subhanAllah, the way he embraced Islam was that when he followed Islam, his mother kicked him out of the house. Kicked him out of the house. But he still would not leave. They, 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 she stripped him of all the wealth, all the money. I'm not going to give you anything. No money, nothing. And he said, okay, you take the wealth. And when he was about to leave the house, the Quraysh were there with his mother and they said, that means everything, Musab, even the clothes on your body. And they kicked him out naked on the streets. And then the Muslims, they clothed him. And he used to always wear tatters. 
This is how much his commitment was for, for Islam. So they sent Musab bin Umair to the, start giving dawah. So, so Musab bin Umair was sent and he was instructed by the Prophet to teach them about Islam and teach them of the Quran. So the Muslims in Medina, they refer to as the Ansar. So you've got the two tribes, the Aws and the Khazraj. And when they become Muslim, they give support to Muhammad And therefore the term Ansar comes in. So they refer to the Ansar. So he lived with this very young Sahabi, Asad bin Zurara. He was a young man and he was from a very prestigious family in Medina. Now here's the interesting point. Musab bin Amir used to live with him in his house and they used to go around giving dawah, go to one friend's house to another friend's house as they would do. When Musab bin Amir reported back to Muhammad we have at least now 40 people who have become Muslim. This is when Muhammad made Jummah Farth upon them. The first Jummah was instituted by Musab bin Umair in Medina. Interesting fact. Because Muhammad could not do Jummah in Makkah because it was hostile, they would kill him. They were still praying in privacy and it was, it was too dangerous for them to do it, right? Imagine if the whole khutbah is being done and they can, can just come and attack you. So Musab bin Umair was ordered by Muhammad to start instilling the Jummah. Two major key people in Medina that if you get these people, you've got Medina, effectively. From the Aws and the Khazraj, if you get these two, you, you, you've got the majority. Most of your obstacles will, be, will disappear. One of them is Saad ibn Mu'ad, okay? Saad ibn Mu'ad is going to come back many times in the story. Very, very famous Sahabi, okay, from Medina. And the other one is Osad ibn uh, Hudair. Now, beautiful story. What happened was, Asr ibn Zurara is, is the Ansar that Musab bin Umair is living with. So he's moving around with him, introducing to his mates, giving dawah, people are converting. And Saad ibn Muad is his cousin, first cousin. And he's older and he's a leader of the, of the Banu al-Ashar tribe. And Usad ibn Hader is a leader of another tribe and they're good friends. So they're now having a conversation. So Saad says to Usaid, do me a favor. You see my cousin Asad. He's got this man, Musab, yeah, this outsider, and they're going around preaching Islam, attacking our beliefs. He's my cousin, and it doesn't look good if I go to his house and I kick off and I start a fight. So do me a favor, you go down there and you sort out the problem. Get rid of this guy, Musab bin Amir, and tell my cousin he's got to stop, otherwise there's going to be problems. Usab said, okay, no problem. He takes his weapons and he makes his way to the house of Asr bin Zurara. And Musab bin Umair is sitting there giving a class. So imagine these youngsters there talking about Islam. So this man, Usad, turns up with his weapon. Asad sees him coming and, he's, and he starts to panic. And he says to Musab bin Umair, that's Usay bin Hudair. He's the leader of one of the tribes. And if he's coming over here, he's going to kick off. There's going to be big problems. He said, don't worry, inshallah, leave it. So he turns up. Usay turns around and he says to both of them. He says, I don't know about you. You should know better being from this community, but you, Musab bin Umair, you're an outsider. You come down here, you preach your religion, you preach your ideas and your values. We don't like them. If you don't leave, there's going to be problems. You better stop what you're doing and you need to get out of town. Asad gets angry and says to him, just because you follow falsehood and stupid ideas, you don't want to listen to this man. So Musab bin Umair, being the imam that he is, he said, listen, Usaid, I am willing to stop my dawah 
and leave town if you only allow me to speak to you for 10 minutes. Listen to what I have to say and if you don't like it and you don't agree with it, I'll leave. So Musayyid said, that's fine, that's fair. He sits down and Musayyid ibn Abir starts to give him da'wah. Starts to recite Quran, explains from the tenants. Now what is amazing about Islam is that when you live in a world of values which are so jahil, so corrupted, where there's no fairness, there's no, you've got the hierarchy, you've got the poor being treated badly, you've got the slaves being treated badly, you've got women being treated badly. Who would not want good values? Who would not be receptive to the good ideas, to the good values of trustworthiness and, and, and the haq? So when he heard this, he was amazed, especially with the recited Quran. He says, how does one join this religion? He says, you perform the ablution and you change your clothes and you perform the two rakat salah. And so he did this. And after performing this, prayer, he said, there is one man behind me, Saad ibn Mu'ad. If you get this man, you'll have no obstacles in the way. Nothing. So he said, leave it to me. So Hudair gets up and he walks back. This has all happened within literally half an hour to an hour. Half an hour to an hour. Look how Allah can change the hearts of the people. So Usaid walks back. And Saad ibn Mu'adh is sitting there with his tribe and he's looking at his face. He goes, that's not the face that he went with. He's coming back like he's softened up or given up. So he comes back and he looks at him and he says, so Hudair, what happened then? He said, I spoke to both of them. To be honest, in my view, they're harmless. But you've got a bigger problem. I've just heard the Banu Harith tribe are coming to kill Asad because they want to get revenge from you against something that you had done. So obviously he deflected the situation, told a little bit of a porky there, and then Saad ibn Muad got very angry. He said, you were good for nothing. I gave you one job to do, and now you bring me another problem. So Saad ibn Muad grabs all his weapons and starts making his way to protect his cousin from the Banu Harith tribe that are going to attack him. Once he gets close to them, he realizes there's nobody here. He's made a lie. So while he was there, he kicks off and he starts having a go at his cousin Asad. And then he starts having a go at Musa bin Umair. He says, you need to leave town. Nobody wants you here. Nobody likes your ideas. Go back from where you came from. Nobody wants your kind here. Sounds very familiar. Nobody wants your preaching here. Nobody wants this Islamic ideas and Islamic views about this. You're all nothing but a bunch of terrorists. You don't deserve to be here. It's our values or no one else's value. And so Musa bin Umair says to him, sit down, please allow me to speak. And if you do not like what I say, then I will leave. Saad bin Muad said, okay, fair deal. If it doesn't require me to beat you up and make a scene and you'll leave, because there's no way you're going to convince me. So he sits down and he recites Surah Al-Zukhruf to him. The verse, right, towards the end. And he's amazed by this verse. Then he compounds it with the values of Islam. This man is astound. His cousin Asr said, whilst he's reciting the Quran, just from his face we can tell he's already become Muslim. And Saad ibn Muad gets up and he says, this is amazing. How does one embrace this religion? And they did the same thing. Invited him to Islam, did his ablution, changed his clothes, did the salah with him. Saad ibn Muad goes back 
to the Banu Ashur tribe. And he says to all of his people, he says, I will not speak to any one of you until you leave your idol worshipping. They say by the evening, they all became Muslim. By the evening, they all became Muslim because it's all about power, isn't it? If you think about the leader of a masjid comes up and he says, we're going to do this today, everyone's going to support him. Or we're not going to do this today. Or leader of a, of a family or head of a family or head of a friends, right? You can, you can use your influence. That's the way the world works. That is the way the world works. If you can influence. Not everybody may be intellectually convinced by you, but they will follow you for other reasons. And eventually they will be convinced with your belief if the belief is correct. At that moment in time, they now became Muslims. So with this Tao being impacted and now growing, then what happened was Jabir bin Abdullah was one of the Ansar. And they talked amongst themselves and they were thinking about Muhammad's situation. They said, look, Tao is kicking off here. Many people becoming Muslims here. We are here sitting comfortably, spreading Islam. And Muhammad is ducking and diving in Makkah. He doesn't know whether he's going to live today, live tomorrow, whether he'll be able to spread his message. He's got no protection. Let's get out there and let's go and give our support to him. So the message got out to Muhammad that they were coming the following. This is the 12th year now that they were coming out to give him a proper allegiance, bayah now. So this is the pledge of Al-Aqaba, the very famous pledge. They come out and this is during the Hajj pilgrimage again. Why? Because it's the most elusive way of doing it. Nobody knows. Hundreds and thousands of people are coming. The, t- the tribe from Yathrib, Medina, they come. They, uh, there are Muslims and there are non-Muslims in that tribe. So in that, 75 of them are Muslims. Some women, some men. The rest of them are non-Muslims. So the non-Muslims have no idea what's going on. The Arab tribe, non-Muslims, have no idea. So they come. One famous story was... A man that came was 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 who was the uncle of Khabin Malik. He was on the way. He was traveling, and it's interesting. He was traveling, and he said, "Now that Salah had become fard, he said, I think that really we should be praying towards the Kaaba. What do you think?" They said, "The Prophet never told us to pray, so we know that the Kaaba they were not pointing, they were not praying towards the Kaaba. So when Salah became fard, so remember." Salah did not become fard until the 10th year of his prophethood, after Israel al Miraj. Then the five Salah was instilled. And by the way, it wasn't even the full Salah. It was only two, two, two. Every Salah was two rakats only. It changed afterwards. And the direction they were praying was to J- Jerusalem, to Al-Quds. Because it was forbidden for the Muslims to pray towards the Kaaba because of the idols that were in there. So this man says to his nephew, Khabib Malik, he says, I think we should pray towards God because it's other Ismail he built here with his father Ibrahim They said, the Prophet has not ordered us. One of the tenets of the conditions, do not disobey your Prophet. So he disagreed and he just, look, I think, thinking of the better man, he thinks that he should do that, right? Some of us do this. When it comes to Islam, somebody says, Islam doesn't say that you should do this. But I think it's nothing wrong with it. We should do it. Islam doesn't say you should do it. But I think it's not a bad thing. Islam says you should not do it. It doesn't give you the evidence. This is the thing. He's using his logic thinking, makes sense, right? Ibrahim Islam is God's house. Why don't we pray there? So they were not happy. When they got to Makkah, 
he said to his nephew Harvey Malik, let's sneak off and let's go see Moscow. I want to ask him about this matter because after looking at your face of disgust, I want to get this matter cleared up. So they go into Makkah. They ask for where Muhammad is. They said, have you ever met him? They said, no. They said, do you know his uncle, Al-Abbas? They said, yes. He said, well, you'll find Al-Abbas in the mosque. So they walk into the mosque. They find Al-Abbas sitting there with his nephew, Muhammad so they walk up, they sit down with Mansa Salam and they introduce themselves. Mansa Salam says to Al Abbas, Do you know these two? So he doesn't know Khabib Malik yet. So many of these Muslims that converted, he doesn't even know who they are. He doesn't have not met them. So they sit there, he said, Do you know? Because yes, these people are from Medina. And then he asked him the question about praying towards the Kaaba. And Mansa Salam said, Did I order you to pray towards that? No, I didn't. And it would have been better for you to carry on praying to the direction of Jerusalem. And so then he went back and he prayed towards that direction. Now, Muhammad agreed to meet the Ansar on the last day of the Hajj. So what happened is in the night, this is just a few hours before Fajr, they all come, 75 of them. So they snuck out one by one away from the camp where everyone else is sleeping. So the Kuffar will not even know from the, from, from the people of Medina. So they came to Muhammad Muhammad turns up with Al-Abbas, his uncle. Now, Al-Abbas, his uncle, is not even Muslim yet. But he loves his nephew and he knows that right now in, in Makkah, you got protection from us. You got protection from us. But if we hand you over to them, we need to make sure that you're going to be protected. You're not exposed, you're not going to be killed. So Al-Abbas, when he meets them, he was the first one to speak up. So he says to them, Oh Khazraj and Aus, Muhammad holds a position with us which you are fully aware of. We love him, respect him, and he's from a very high-class tribe. We protect him from our people who think about him as we do. He is respected among his people and safe in his own town. But he is determined to join up with you. If you think you will keep trust with him, in the invitation that you've given him, that you want him to join you, and you will protect him from his opponents, then it's up to you to accept your responsibilities. But if you think that you might deliver him over and abandon him after he has joined you, then leave him right now. Don't take him. We're not going to take that risk. He does have respect and protection among his own people and in his own town. So they responded after hearing Al-Abbas's opening statement. They said, we hear what you say, and now we want to hear from the Prophet Muhammad So they said to the Prophet Muhammad O Messenger of God, what do you wish to pledge from us? What do you want us to pledge? And this is what he said, and this is on the second now pledge. He said, you must pledge to hear and obey at times of both action and inaction, to give where the times are hard, or easy and to advocate goodness and prohibit evil and I just want you to think for a second that he is talking to you now imagine Muhammad comes back now and you've done all your bad stuff and whatever and he says now you want to pledge this is what I want from you you must speak out for Allah and not fear any blame for supporting God if that means losing your job if that means your partners are not following Islam and they decide to leave you divorce you your kids will leave you, that you will not compromise Allah's religion. 
you must help and defend me if I come to you in the same ways you help and defend yourselves, your wives and your children. You will then attain paradise. And so they all stood up before him and they said, we will pledge allegiance. And before that happens, his hand they took his hand and Asad bin Zuhara, the one who used to give support Musa bin Amir, intervenes, takes Masa in the hand and holds on to it. He says, wait, all of you, wait for one second. And he was the youngest of all of them. He said, take it easy, people of Yathrib. We only hurried here because we know that he is a messenger of God. Bringing him out now, bringing him to the open, would be a provocation to all the Arabs that would cause you to lose your elite and would box you in with swords raised against you. If you are able to withstand that, then adopt him and it will be up to God to reward you. But if you are a people who have great fear for yourselves, then leave him and make the fact plain. That, that course would be more forgivable in God's sight. Meaning if you give him up now, you'll get less punishment. Then take him and then abandon him. Listen, when you take the pledge, when you're going to take him on now, everyone is going to turn against you. Everyone. You know, most of us, we don't feel the pressure. Most of us don't feel the pressure. You know why? Because on the face of it, you don't even represent Islam. You represent Islam for yourself because if you're at work or uni, you'll pray five times a day. That's for you, right? That's between you and Allah, okay? When you're you know, at home, fine, you will pray. Your kids may not pray. Your father may not pray, but you're doing it for yourself, fine. But when you take it to the next stage, when Allah says, push your Islam to a level where you will choose between Allah and Kufr, so you're at work. And it happens all the time. Manager turns around and says, we're all getting together, uh, team dinner, very important. I want everyone to show up. The big boss is coming from Singapore and it's going to be at the duck. Yeah, the pub. Just made that up, right? It will be at the pub. So make sure you all turn up. And now you're in a situation. And he just happens to do it at Friday lunchtime when it's Jummah. What are you going to do? A person who has a very agnostic belief or has a very balanced view says, if I don't go, I'll lose my opportunity to get a promotion. Number two, I may risk myself to be a non-team player. I will be deemed as an outsider. And if I say that I'm not going to go because I need to go do Jummah, I could be classed as a terrorist. That is because you're making that proposition to yourself because you believe that all the success and everything that achieves your success is in their control and not Allah's control. And Allah said in the Quran, do they have the right over your fear more than I do? Who do you fear more? So this is the point that they are trying to make to these Sahabi, to the Ansar, that you now need to understand where you lie in this proposition. Do you understand that once you have given it up, you are going to be challenged, you're going to be broken. And that's where the monarchists will come into the game. Because once everyone has a breaking point, how much are you willing to push Islam? I have seen many people who will go to Islam to a certain level, but when they are pushed to the limit, when they have to put themselves on the line, they give up, they fold, they throw it out the window. And this is what they want to make clear. And so Allah SWT chose these people to be the strongest of the strong, strongest of the Iman. And they said to Asad, get out of the way. Thank you for your speech. We love what you said. 
but we are more than ready. And they said to Muhammad we will give up our children over the belief of Islam. We will fight for Islam and we'll protect you to the end. And so that was it. And then a cry came out at the night. Once they took the pledge, once they took the pledge of Muhammad a cry that came out and they said, O oh Quraysh, will you withstand this? Will you stand up for this when these people are going to give support to this man? And there's Ansara, look, what is that? And Muhammad said, that is the shayateen of Al-Aqaba, who's now announced to the Quraysh. What's happening? He said, disperse. So they dispersed. The next morning, the Quraysh had a hunch from that sound, something, something's kicked off at night. Someone's giving support to Muhammad Sallam. So they're the FBI. They turn up and they start questioning. Now, well, they were clever because when they went to the tribal Medina, not all of the Medina tribe knew what was happening. Only 75 did. To the, the, the Kufar of the Medina tribe, do you know anything about this? Was there some rendezvous that happened? They met with Muhammad Sallam. We don't know nothing. We were in bed. We were sleeping. And so one of these uh, Ansar who was there, Jabir, who noticed this, he thought we better deflect the situation. So he noticed that one of the Quraysh had brand new sandals. And he said to his mate, he says, wouldn't you like those beautiful sandals? You're a chief, you should have one of those sandals as well. And so this man of the Quraysh got so angry, he took his chopper off his sandal and he threw it at them. And he grabbed his job and grabbed his sandal. They said, you better return it back. He goes, no, I classify this as a good omen. Now I'm going to keep this. Can I have the other pair as well? And they just got, all got annoyed. And they flustered and they went off. When they went back, when they went back to Makkah, and everyone started to leave to go back to Medina, all the other tribes went back to their hometown. You can imagine hundreds and thousands of people are now going back. What had happened was... They got, a, they got news that yes, they did meet up. So they chased back after the people of Medina and guess who they caught? Saad ibn Muad. They caught Saad ibn Muad, they handcuffed him, they slapped him up, they took him back to Makkah and they said, what happened? They tried to get all the information out, he wouldn't say anything. One man of the Quraysh went to Saad ibn Muad, he says, aren't there any people in, in Makkah that you used to give protection to? He goes, yeah, there were two people that used to come to Medina. I used to protect him from the tribes. He goes, shout their names out now and they will come and they'll give you protection because that's a universal law, right? Unwritten law. That if you can give protection to someone in your town, no one's going to touch you. So they came out and they gave protection and they couldn't do it. They had to release Saad ibn Muad. So Saad ibn Muad had then left, escaped back. Zakla khair.